Welcome back to another episode of Speaking to Stacey, the podcast sharing practical advice for an action-driven lifestyle. My name is Stacey Liddell, and today I had the opportunity to speak with a retired rugby player who played for the German international team. Before I introduce my guest, I want to say a big thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen in and learn something new. If you found this conversation entertaining or useful, please could I ask you to share the episode with one other person. You never know the positive impact someone's story could have on someone you care about. This week, my guest is Michael Popmeyer, a former professional rugby player with a long and colorful journey in the sport. He currently manages a team of six in the corporate world, but has kept one foot in the game by remaining active as a coach. Three key takeaways this week are, number one, understanding that you don't need to start a sport at a young age to excel at it. Number two, why team culture is vitally important to success, be it on the rugby field or in the business world. Number three, Mike explains why having a vision for your life beyond your sports career is extremely important. If you stick around to the end of the show, you'll understand which skills Mike has been able to transfer from the rugby pitch to the corporate world. So without further ado, I present to you Michael Popmeyer. Michael, as is the custom on this show, I allow my guests to introduce themselves. So if you wouldn't mind just giving a, a sort of a background and letting the audience or the listeners know a little bit about yourself, and then we can dive into your sports career and move the conversation on from there. Yeah. Um, thanks, Stacey. Uh, thanks for having me, first of all. So yeah, you already uh, mentioned my name is Michael Popmeyer. I am South African born to an Austrian father and German mother. Uh, grew born in Durban, um, schooled in the Eastern Cape in Grahamstown. Um, it's actually where I found my love for rugby. Um, I joined I joined uh, Graham College in Standard Six and uh, or what, what is that Grade Eight for the old for the younger generation. Um, and and part of your your ritual there is to to always look after the first team and. Uh, my my duty was to be the first team T-boy, and I loved it so much that I stayed first team T-boy until I finished school. I didn't play rugby at school. Um, I was I was not the size I am today. I was I was short and fat, and one of the first guys in the front of the line. And uh, yeah, so when I left school, I uh, got into the hospitality background because that's what my family are in. And um, I guess after one year of being abroad and and fending for myself, I came back and. Uh, my grandparents who brought me up moved to George and um, my uncle said to me at that time, if you want to make friends, join a sports club and, and George being George, it was obviously rugby um, dominance and that's what I, was, I joined and, and that's where my kind of rugby career kicked off. Uh, I started playing for George Rugby Club at the age of 19 um, and then quickly got, yeah, I think because of my size, I got taken into the SVD under 19 and under 21 groups, and then um, eventually after a year got invited to the SA Rugby Academy, which was uh, 10, 10 boys from the Eastern Province, uh, Southwestern Districts, and from Border. And we were in the program in PE, and we stayed at UPE campus, and we basically learned anything and everything to do with rugby. And, and that was pretty much my, my start into the sport and, and what is still my passion and my love for, for the game. Um, and yeah, from there, Kind of went everywhere with it, you know. I played a lot of club rugby in Cape Town, played for Western Province, played for Eastern Province. Um, then having a European passport, I used that to my advantage and played quite a lot of rugby overseas in, in the UK, and Ireland, uh, Italy, um, France, and then and then even Germany. I got I got a call when I was in the SA 21 group from the German Rugby Union. Um, at that time, we used to do a lot of pranks on each other and, and pretend to be agents and phone people and come down to the hotel room and, um, you know, you're, we watched your game yesterday. We want to see, we want to talk to you about joining the Bulls or whatever. And, and I thought that was a joke because I honestly didn't think that Germany played rugby. So I hung up <laughs> and then uh, the phone rang again and uh, it, it, was, it was genuine. And so I obviously didn't make the final cut for SNS 21 squad. Um, that was quite a strong squad that was with Jake White and they went on to win it. Uh, I think Clyde Rathbone was the captain at the time and that's where Scott Berger was found and all these guys. And, so, and it, was, it, it was also the majority of his squad, the 2007 World Cup winning squad. So I joined, I came across Germany. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I liked the, the amateur aspect of it, but the professional way of looking into the game. So your physios and all that kind of stuff was always taken care of. Um, but it was never professional in, in a manner that you 
you made money from the sport. Then eventually I retired from, from rugby at, I think I was 30 years old, and I moved back to the Eastern Cape with my wife. Uh, I got a job offer, and so, so did she. Um, and after two years, I was missing the sport terribly, and um, my wife's father was rather ill, and so we decided to move back to Cape Town. Um, and I thought, let me start playing rugby again, and it kicked off from there. And uh, then I literally, back into the province squad, uh, German rugby was on the up again. We had a big sponsor uh, from Capri Sun. And then they offered me a job to come over and be like a rugby development officer, as well as kind of play out my career. And then, and I guess that was the one and only time that I had a proper professional contract for rugby, and um, probably the best the best years of my life. And it, it, when I meet up with my friends, that's all we ever talk about because we had quite a lot of successes as as a German national team and, and as a club set up in in Europe. I guess that's it. Otherwise, I'm going to give away too much. Okay, awesome. There's a lot to. A lot to break down there. You've had a, a very colorful rugby journey. Yeah. It's great. I just wanted to find yeah. out from you, going back to your your high school days, you mentioned that you didn't play rugby in school and you sort of alluded to the fact that it was about your size and, and stature, right? Yeah. And, and, and the fact that I was pretty shit scared of the contact that I was witnessing on the side of the field every day. <laughs> okay. Got you. So... From from the outside looking in, it looks like you obviously a bit of a late bloomer. When did you when did you actually hit your your growth spurt? When did you suddenly go from short fat Mike to big rugby star Mike? <laughs> yeah, um, it was the end of grade ten, so what standard eight, uh, sixteen uh, summer holidays. I got I got pneumonia, ended up in hospital, missed my final exams. It's the only time I probably passed mathematics uh, because I've got a class average. <laughs> and the, literally after that six weeks, I just went through a growth spurt and kind of never stopped. And yeah, like, like I said, I mean, the, the, the year that I spent overseas and what, what most people know, the gap year gave me a lot more confidence to, to have a crack at the sport along with my size. Okay, interesting. And from a skills and technical point of view, did you have a, a hell of a lot of catching up to do to learn those basics or had you kind of practiced at least on the side because you were watching the game or was it literally you started with a blank slate? No, so the, the skill side is actually something my wife always jokes around. Like uh, my son got a remote control car for Christmas and you know, I could ride it without, like I mean, I could drive it without having to think about it. She was just frustrated because anything that I can touch with a ball, I'm quite good at. So at school, I played a lot of tennis, squash, water polo. Cricket was my main sport. Athletics was another main sport of mine. So it was always there. The only thing with rugby that I had to learn was obviously what my role as a lock was because that was the only position I really played. Um, and then the contact situation. So I had to I had to get used to my size and how to put my body into positions to fill the role of you know being a forward. Um, and okay. like I said, it, it, my last three, four years of rugby, it was probably my best. But yeah, I think I was delayed in that in that aspect because you know I often think back to my younger days. You know, if if I could go back knowing what I know now, I would have been a better player. Yeah, yeah, of course. It would have been so interesting had you started rugby earlier because it would have been a situation where the coaches would have probably had you playing as a backline player. And then they would have had to suddenly jump and change because your your physiology just changed so quickly that they would have obviously seen yeah. you could have been more effective up front. It's so interesting. Yeah. Well, thanks for thinking of me as a backline player. <laughs> 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 My ultimate dream was to always play fly half. Um, but yeah, I think the stars aligned, and and I mean, I love my my strong points in rugby. Were always the line out. Um, the set piece, and then and, and later on, I, I, I got a little bit more, what do I say, aggressive in the contact. I mean, I got up, that's from watching players. You know, I, I analyze rugby. I don't watch it for the joy. I, I watch it to analyze. So you know, you watch it. Like in my area, I was watching a guy like Bucky's Boiter and Victor Matfield and Scott Berger, Martin Johnson, who was an England captain. You know, putting their bodies in positions that you think they're crazy, but then they still, yeah, they went on to do big things. You know. So those are the kind of guys I looked up to. Yeah, that was a that was a great time to watch rugby because it was still it had just kind of gone fully professional in a real 
sort of financial way. So there was a little bit of that hard man left where like the the contact and stuff looked a little bit sort of borderline suspect to what the guys are, are doing these days. And I think it was less less technical. There was less uh less analyzing and over analyzing of, of every single breakdown and, and and how to ruck properly and do all those things. So I think there was a little rawness yeah. to the game that made those kind of players very effective in, in that era. Yeah. Um no, I, I was just trying to think about like things like scrumming and line out jumping because you said you played lock right so mm-hmm. are those things that can that you learned quite quickly um in the right in the right setup or did that take a bit of time to get like the, the jumping and the timing and the scrum positioning and all that stuff so so when i started playing um playing rugby it was it was kind of the introduction of of jumping and a line out so that kind of came naturally to me um i played a bit of basketball school um even though i weigh quite a lot a lot of feedback from my props that I've always played with or flankers that lifted me. I always appreciated was the fact that I could jump. <laughs> so it made it, it made it easier for them to, to lift me. Um, you know, I'm currently involved with, with the Tel Aviv heat in Israel. And when I'm coaching line with them, I often get involved and get stuck in. And, and they also, I mean, these are, these are professionals today and they, they're still saying that, Oh, you can still jump, you know, uh, even at the age of 40. So it wasn't really, uh, taught to me. Um, I kind of taught myself from analyzing, teams and watching what people do and and, and you know what I, I, I still tell a lot of young locks that I work with skipping is probably the best thing you can do for, for becoming an effective jumper okay okay makes a lot of sense I think what I'm hearing a lot as well is that your experiences in other sports are crossing over quite quite visibly quite explicitly into into rugby that's very interesting um, yeah I also found that because I played a lot of squash as well and I always felt that my hand-eye coordination from squash definitely helped when it came to cricket and rugby and, and things like that. Um, yeah. The one thing I wanted to ask about is lock specifically because I had a, a guest on the show. When was it? Maybe oh, it was last week's guest, um, Martin Muller. So the date now for everyone is, is the 3rd of January, but this episode will go live later on. And... Mm. He was talking about how locks are in short supply, and so if you're a lock, you kind of have you're a little bit of a luxury. So yeah, it's for him for his experience. He got injured, and then he said coming back from injury was always a little bit easier to get back in because there wasn't a long line of people in front of him queuing up to play lock. Um, yeah, and I didn't get the opportunity to ask him because I wasn't thinking about the question at the time. But I wanted to ask you, seeing as you guys played the same position, why do you think that is? Why is there a lack of that position specifically. Do you think it's a, a physiological thing? You know, the, often the requirement is you have to be super tall, or do you think it's a desire thing? Do you think players are gravitating towards the more sort of inverted commas uh, glamorous roles like flankers, eighth man? And what do you think it mm. is that that makes lock a less sought after position for people to play? Look, I think in my, my my personal opinion there would be it's a mixture of the, of the two. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're really tall guys. I mean, I, I live in Germany and when I see a tall guy, I'm like, come play rugby. And he's like, no, what is that? I don't like it. It's, it's too much, you know? Um, and then the other thing is also you get your flankers that are what, one, eight, nine, one, nine, one, two, one, three, one, nine, three. And they're that, no, I'd rather play flankers. It's a more, more glamorous role. Locks, you know, you look at like a Bucky, a Victor, or even a Yevon, they, they just want to play lock. Uh, and it was the same for me. I, I didn't want to play any other position. I think I played maybe two or three tests for Germany at eight. And I was getting rounded by people and it, it just wasn't for me. So it's, it's a bit of a mix of the both. You, you either want to play it and then obviously your size does count. You know, you want a bit of height and you want a bit of size to, to add into the road. And I think that's for most coaches, it's always difficult finding a lock. Uh, it always has been. And then, then having to try ask a flanker who's not really that tall to just put his head between a hooker and a prop's ass and, <laughs> and get his ears ripped apart. And uh, most people don't like that. So, yeah. It's a mix of the two. I assumed as much. It, it's obviously the front row and the second row is not where the all the glory lies. Mm. So I think naturally guys don't gravitate towards those positions. The final thing about about the second row, and excuse my ignorance, I mean I played scrummy for a long time, so I I saw a lot of the front row when I obviously up there putting the ball in. I saw a lot of the back row because that's where the ball comes out. Yeah, but you, I didn't get a lot of time with the 
with the second row and change the second row guys. Yeah. Is there a difference between the two? Like, is there anything specific to the four that the five isn't well known for? for? Like for those people that don't know a lot, a lot about rugby in rugby, even though there are two flankers, the two flankers have very different roles. Um, even playing on different wings is slightly different uh, how you bring them into the game. So just, I'm just wondering, is there a difference between the four and the five? Was it pretty stock standard? I think, I think if you, as a coach, if you have a big bulky lock and a tall lanky lock, then you have a luxury. Because um, that's the ideal. And I mean, I'm talking as, as if I was a coach, you know. If I had two tall string beans, I'd also be happy. But um, effectively, your heavier lock would kind of scrum behind the tight head side to make sure that your tight head side is, is, is nicely locked in and not going backwards. And then your more kind of uh, lankier, lighter lock would be on the loose head side. Um, and and that's that's what from I've experienced as a, as a player and also coaching guys now. That's what I would do. Um, but yeah, there's there's not much of it. I mean, I personally scrumming behind tight head was always my thing. Uh, on the loose head side, I always felt like I was going through, or I was kind of I'd, I'd often leave the loose head alone and just stay with the hooker. Whereas on the hooker tight head side, it was always a lot more tighter and a little bit more comfortable. Let's say. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine. If you had a podcast with just the front row and the back row talking, you guys could do a full two, three, four hours just on scrumming technique, maybe even more. I mean, it's always it's always fascinated me just being the scrum off. You get to see that stuff up front. And I just remember, especially in high school when I played first side, the tight head for yeah. us was, was very, very good at scrumming. And like I could often see how he was manipulating the, the front row, but within the bounds of the rules, you know, and I was always just fascinated by it because he wasn't, a, he wasn't a massive guy. Yeah. He just knew exactly what he was doing and he, yeah. he could make guys that weighed 10, 20 kilos more than him. He could, uh, what's the word, control them and dominate them without the size. And it was always interesting to see. What, what's his name? And does he have a European passport? Oh, no, <laughs> does he, he doesn't. Want to <laughs> he doesn't, no, unfortunately uh, not. <laughs> no, it's a, com- it's a complete science. And it's something, I mean, I, I coach with a guy by the name of Paul Day, who's literally a legend in Cape Town. And he's in his 60s and he's still learning the scrum every day. It's, it's, it obviously evolves with the rules, you know. Yeah, constantly. And I'm, I can imagine, maybe we can also dive into this. Now is probably a good time. The... Is there is it has it got to the level yet where they are using video and data and science to analyze like body positioning and sort of where the best place to push for, put force is on on the opposition? Is it has it gotten to those that stage yet of the of the science of the scrum? I, I think it, it it kind of has been, but you know when I was in the rugby, SA Rugby Academy, we were scrumming against a machine that could measure force and all that, and um and and that was more for the safety aspect, you know, because there was a lot of neck injuries back then, and that's why they've changed the the crouch line and gauge or set rules uh, over the years. But I think you know, like I've read articles of some schools having scrum machines where you can literally sit on the scrum machine with a remote control and add more pressure on the tight head or on the loose head side. Wow. As opposed to your old, you know, wooden scrum machine with cushions that are probably worn out, and you know, um, but yeah, it's a complete science, and 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 scrum coaches specifically, obviously, analyze, obviously at different levels, but I think at the international level, there's such an such an analysis on your opposition leading into a game, um, and then you got to have, you got to even analyze the ref to see what his cause will be at that level, mm. because you know, all respect to refs, and I don't want to get down into that Rossi era, but. <laughs> I think refereeing the scrum is probably the most difficult part for, for refs because they've never been there. You know, you're not going to see a, a retired tight head running around the field and refereeing a game. I watched the, the Carte Blanche episode recently about refs and Victor Matfield spoke about, and I've always had the same idea, is that you should have a scrumming refing panel, basically, like your TMO, who could, who could give down messages to the ref and say, look, the loose head for this team's cheating, he's doing this, you know, so that you, you help make the right decisions. Watching it from TV as well, you can see oftentimes if the ref is stuck on one side, because the scrum is obviously quite a big, takes up a big space, he can't get around to the other side to see what's always happening. So that's a that's a very interesting suggestion. At international level, you could definitely do it with all these Hawks art cameras and cameras above, and, and it's definitely a possibility. Because I mean, at, at the end of the day, that's where your most coaches get upset because, you know, your, your coaching staff are so huge. You have a, a scrum coach, and he gets upset when the call's wrong, and, and rightfully so. But um, I think maybe at that level, at international level, that, that might not be a bad introduction. 
I know there's a lot of sports purists who aren't happy when more and more technology gets put into the game, but surely if it's making the game more fair and it's making the game better for for the players, I just I don't see why not. Yeah, I think at, at the end of the day, when you want to watch international rugby, you want to watch a flowing game. I think you could pull up stats to see how many times scrums reset and how much time is wasted on on, on that. Uh, it will be. I think they are starting to introduce rules where the scrums got to happen quicker. So uh, let's let's see what happens. Yeah, I remember going out in the winter time in Cape Town. Obviously, you know the the rain sometimes gets quite hectic, and some of those fields up there in the southern suburbs, you know, like Weinberg and and Sachs and stuff, because they're right there under the mountain. They would get a lot of water, and then reset after reset after reset oh, it's just slipping and it was having to move the scrum yeah. three four times it was yeah it was a nightmare and the poor wingers were just standing outside waiting for the ball you know so yeah <laughs> <laughs> poor wingers freezing out there <laughs> the forwards just keeping warm yeah all right so i wanted to also talk about your stints both in south africa and abroad Let's see if I have this right. You come back from your year abroad, like your gap year, and then you go to George. Mm-hmm. You start playing in the George club rugby setup, and then from that club rugby setup, you get spotted by the SA Academy. Yeah, so firstly, uh, the SWD under-19 side, so you, you play the Curry Cup uh, aspects of, of that age group level, and then from there, there used to be a program where they would select 10 boys from each of those kind of, what would you say, uh, minnow uh, unions, you know, like EP, Border, and SVDA. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it was like the year before me, the likes of like a Soli Tibileke, who was a Springbok, he was in the, the SA Rugby Academy. In my year, Luke Watson was with me. Um, guys like Dean Hopp, and these guys have got, all gone on to play Super Rugby. You know? So it was a good program to obviously um, try elevate those players from smaller unions like talent, talent identification, but at the same time, aside from rugby, you would also be doing something on the side. So we like studied all the coaching courses and then uh, we did like a fitness course and all that kind of stuff while we were there. Okay, so there was a bit of a focus on academics as well, or at yeah. least something, up, so that if the rugby journey didn't work out 100%, you had a little bit of something to fall back on. Exactly. That's quite nice because, you know, I was having this conversation with Kyle Brown, the former Blitzbook captain, yeah. and he was just saying how how ill prepared so many guys are uh, once they leave the the sport behind, and then yeah. you're kind of on your own. And yeah, it's it's a big conversation that I think needs to be taken more seriously by the sports boards in in yeah. international countries. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so you you then you go to SA Rugby Academy, and you said you got involved with. Uh, both provincial rugby, so EP Western Province, as well as uh, it was you say SA under twenty ones, but you didn't make that final cut. Yeah, so so you got you got your ten boys from each of those three small unions. Uh, we played together as a team, and for the six months of the year, we were together training, you know, learning, uh, doing things rugby, and then you'd get sent back to your unions to play the Curry Cup for that age group. Um, and then you would come back. But within that, it was also the SA under-21 um, competition that was in South Africa. So we, I'm, I'm added to the, the, the squad of 50. And I think back, and I was just, you know, like a guy like Ashton Willemster was, was testing with me as a winger, benching like, I don't know, 160 kilograms, and I was only benching 120. And then you kind of saw the difference between, you know, you're playing rugby and you're having fun, but if you want to be professional, there's a, there's a big step up, you know. And, and that kind of sowed a seed with me. as like this winger's, you know, he's professional and he's in a different setup and he went on to, to do great things with South Africa and, and rugby for himself. You know? So you, you kind of get a, a rude awakening to catch up. So you don't want to ever live your life with, with regrets, but sometimes you often do think about going back and like, yeah, I wish I would have taken that seriously or I wish I would have done that differently. But uh, yeah, life has a funny way of panning out. Yeah. Do you feel as if you could have done things, you know, pushed yourself a little bit harder here and there or... Were you intentional when you were younger as, as well? Because the reason why I ask is one of my previous guests also said that he only realized sort of later on in his career that every single practice, every single gym session, every single uh, meal that he ate, at the back end of his career, he was very intentional. And those tiny little, tiny little 
things he realized over time, over two, three years, just stacked up and he was playing the best rugby at the end of his career because of all those tiny little wins. Mm. Is that something you you relate to as well? Yeah, look, it's, like I said, I don't, I don't have, I don't want to have too many regrets in life and, and that, I'm not going to say that is one of my regrets, but yes, it's something I definitely coach my youngsters or the younger guys today. Like, listen, you know, you're playing the sport for a reason. You're either playing it just for fun or you're playing it because you want to go somewhere with it. And if you want to go somewhere with it, you think if you're benching 140, that's enough. It's not enough. You've got to keep pushing yourself. And much like your other guest, I don't know who it was, but my last four or five years of rugby were probably some of my best because I was taking everything seriously. I was looking after my body. I was doing the rehab. I wasn't, it wasn't about the party after the game. It was about getting fresh up, you know, because you would go into a November test series. You, you have a week to recover to go play another big game, you know, so you, you do, it does sit in the back of your head. So I wish I could have been a little bit more professional in my younger days. 100%, but um, I don't have any regrets with what I have done as a youngster and just, you know, meeting the people that I have and the experience that I have, have had. I think both with sport and with life. I mean, I haven't had the the opportunity to play professional sport, but I played a lot as a, as a young person into my 20s. And I think it's sometimes also very easy to look back and think, oh, I wish I'd done things a bit differently. But then I also sort of look at my younger self and realize maybe I wasn't at the level of maturity yet to have all those things click into place, you know? And, and I think that some guys do and some girls do, you know, they, they know exactly what they want and they, their maturity is at a, at a place where they understand that at a young age. And I think for me personally, I, things for me only clicked a bit later on and I realized like, oh, you know, there's incremental compounding effects that can happen if you take everything seriously every single day. So you know, I think it, it's important, you know, for those people listening that if you if you feel that you that you have regrets over something like that, it's maybe also be a little bit gentle because it's very easy to look backwards and say, oh, I yeah. could have done it differently um, when you are 30, 40 and you have the maturity to look at life like that. Yeah, look, at, at 100%. I mean, there's no way I was ready to do what I was doing you know, at, at, at 19, I got invited into the SWD Curry Cup squad to go train with him. And there were some really old school buggers on that side that you know could do some damage, but I wasn't mentally ready for that. But in saying that, you know, like I, I'd learned from it because then when I was a little bit older, when young guys were coming into our squad, you know, when I was playing here in Germany, when we had a, a successful club setup and national setup, it's about the culture. And that's another, that's another thing. Sorry about that. Um, that's another thing that I'm big on is, is the culture within the team. So if, if I was an older figurehead in the side and a youngster was coming in, you know, you take him to the side and say, listen, this is a hard environment to be in. Whenever you feel a little bit out of depth, just come and chat to someone. And then, and then having a bunch of leaders in your squad as well that can help make that transition for younger guys coming in a little bit easier, uh, as well as keeping them in check, you know, because young, the younger guys come in and they want to party and they want to do things and then it's a team sport. And at the end of the day, sometimes their actions could have an effect on the team. So it's, it's the culture is also quite important for any kind of anyone's kind of uh, development w- for their future. So I didn't quite have that as a youngster, and I'm not blaming anyone for it. But I do remember one scenario when I got into the SBDA Curry Cup squad. There was a centre by the name of Rudy Carl, and he was the only guy who walked up to me and, and offered his help. But he was an older head, you know. So he was like, "Welcome to this. Enjoy it." Um, and I hope if there's any questions, you know, you know, like they kind of make you feel welcome because it is an intimidating situation to walk into as a youngster, you know. Uh, and it was the same at Province. Uh, Skulk Brits and Tandarai Shavangi did the same Same for myself and another lock who walked in from club setups. And they just said, look, happy to help you guys. Feel welcome. And that does make a difference. Some teams have that, that natural ability to, you know, they have leaders in the locker room where they make everyone realize that your agenda doesn't really matter. Your agenda needs to fit in with the team agenda. It's another thing that Kyle Brown was talking about. He said that, you know, when you walk into a team, especially in sevens, because one player can impact that whole game in a completely different way compared to to fifteens. And you need to very quickly get it out of your head that your agenda is is important. You need to take the team into consideration. And I think as a youngster coming into a setup, especially you can imagine it more so if you are a hot shot and you your ego's sort of taking off for a little bit. It's great to have older heads to to have it to make you sort of realize that number one, 
any questions can be answered so you feel assimilated as part of the side. And also number two, that you need to remember that your agenda isn't as important as, as what the team is trying to achieve. Yeah, it's quite funny because, you know, um, I've, I've played rugby in Germany for a long time and, I, and, I, and I'll, I'll own up to it myself. You know, you come into the German setup as a South African, you think you know better. And very quickly I learned that it's not the case because a lot of the guys that have got German backgrounds are like from Namibia or from France even, and, and they can play some rugby. So it was always funny to see, especially in, in my last few years of, of my career, I, had a, I played with a flank, he's a South African, a South African boy, he qualified through residency. Um, Yaku Otto was his name, and he's a hard bastard. And uh, often we'd get into contact situations, and you always wanted to welcome the new people in to say, like, this is, this is not Mickey Mouse, this is real. And uh, that was often the case. And then and people would catch a quick wake up and they would fit back into line very quickly. I mean, I guess, I don't know if you've ever read a book by James Kerr called Legacy. It's about the All Blacks and how you can implement what they do into business. I haven't, but I've, I've been told to read it like several times. It's a great read and, and there's, there's a, they've got a few steps and one of them is obviously note to kids. And I guess that's what, what we're alluding to. So, yeah. Yeah. Is, is that, you, you mentioned you do a bit of coaching as well. Sorry, jumping around a lot here, but it's, it's cool. Um, mm. How is it? So obviously that's the what that's get everyone in line. And, and I think a lot of the times, you know, in conversation in conversations like this, I don't want to miss the opportunity to ask sort of the how to. So how, how do you go about mm-hmm. getting people into line or not even getting people into line? That's a, that's almost like a militaristic kind of term. How, how do you, how do you make everyone feel welcome? I mean, what are, what are some things that as a coach or as a senior player in the side that you can, that you can embed your culture into, into other people? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the word you're looking for is like buy-in. So, um, yes. you know, you, it, it's always it's, it's always like coaching and playing. You know, you, you come together. I'm talking from a northern hemisphere perspective. You come together, let's say at the end of summer, July, August, and then you into like six, seven, eight weeks of preseason. And and you lift, you you're running up and down a field. You you lifting weights. You're not really tackling or doing contact or showing what you can do in a game scenario because that's ultimately where you're going to get my respect if you're a good player, or you're going to lose my respect if you. And be honest, uh, a chicken shit, and you fall away from contact or something like that. So, for the for the first six seven weeks, you kind of you're pushing the guys more in on the field. So you it's fine the balance. So if they're not stopping on the line or they're stopping before the line, you're putting them in place. Like we're a team, you go to the line, you come back. If you're lifting weights and you're doing it really easy, let's say 120 kilogram bench, like pushing them to say, come let's put, let's put more on. So you're driving competition with within the, within the team and. and Especially for the, the younger guys and you, you or the, the newer guys into the team, and you you want them to to understand that we'll have the buy-in that we want to be successful. We're not here for a joyride. We want to we want to win. And I think at professional level, that's what it's what it's. I mean, obviously you want to have fun and you want to learn, and but ultimately you you do whatever you do in the week to perform on a Saturday. And there's nothing better than going to the change rooms after winning and and reminiscing of that week and of the game, and then you back onto the next week. You know, so you know, it's, it's team culture. And you can't do it by yourself. You need a few guys on the same page as you. Is it something that's systematic? Do you, for example, are there key figures that are identified by the coaching setup and brought in and say, look, guys, this is what we're wanting to achieve. Uh, we believe that you guys have the attributes that we're looking for and we want you to ingrain it in the team. Is it something like that? Because I, I get the feeling, now that I think about it, I get the feeling that's kind of what happened when I played my final year at school. We had four schoolboy rugby side. We yeah. had, it was quite, some people would say it's excessive. I mean, we had a, co- a head coach, an assistant coach, a doctor, a physio. We did video sessions. It was, it was quite hectic, but yeah. it, it was great. Like we loved it. We had def- a defensive coach as well. And now that I think about it, there were, I think, four or five like team captains, like how the, how the American football side does it, where there's like more than one captain. And those guys yeah. kind of, spread the chiss and the culture in the team is 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 it, so is it something that's systematic or does it just kind of flow naturally but you, i think you'll be lucky if it flows naturally you know later on in my career uh, it, it kind of was systematic um, i remember when i joined false bay um it was a culmination of everything you know it was from the top down so from our committee were, were involved and they i mean our term was chiss you know which is obviously have a good time in a sense if you want to if you want to translate it but 
uh, later on when I joined in Germany, you you had to then I had coaches like uh, Mark Ford who coached England and all that kind of stuff. He he would then identify five or six leaders within the team and then give them responsibilities to take the pressure off the one captain that's in the side. So like I captained Germany for for five or six years and to take the pressure off me in other aspects like you, you can't keep your eye on everything. It helps the individual become better at something else, you know. So again, I think it's a mix of the two. You you are either lucky when you come together as as let's say an amateur level that that you have a, a good fit of guys that all get along and, and have fun. And I think in their professional setups, then it's it's kind of down. I mean, in in the Northern Hemisphere, in Germany, for instance, when the club I used to be involved in, frankly, we would just take guys because of their CVs. You know, they were big, they were strong, they played at a decent level, but we never really interviewed them to see what they would be like as a culture fit. And we learned, we learned some lessons from that because sometimes, you know, all, all the gear, no idea, they would come in and, brag and shout and do their things but they could never fit into our culture and we learned from that and then we started interviewing guys would get CVs and you kind of see if they have a culture fit and you you involve your leaders in that conversation or that kind of first meet um, to get an overview and see if they would fit into well to the side you know, so that, that, that made a big difference and that made things easier for the team as well That's fascinating because that reminds me of a conversation I had with my mate a couple of weeks ago um, he was episode number 11, and he coached in the States when MRL had their first like launching season, and <laughs> the Americans always do things a bit differently, so they did like a rugby combine. So they brought all the players out because they were looking for talent, and they tested all these metrics, you know, the speed, yeah. how far can you jump, how high can you jump, how quick can you run, yeah. all these things, how much can you bench. And then he said exactly the same thing. Yeah. He said, you ve- we very quickly identified all the athletes, but then once you signed up a couple of guys, you realized, oh, but we actually don't know anything about the person's character. And now you've got a guy who's got all the, as you said, all the gear, but no idea. And yeah, he said they also learned from that yeah. very quickly that you can't just sign people on, on physical attributes. You need to make sure that you at least try to to see if they can fit into in your process and what you're trying to do. Uh, like I remember with the SNA 21, like you go through that same kind of testing, you know, how your bleed test, uh, how many pull-ups you can do, what you can bench, what you can squat. But at the end of the day, I think in South Africa, you, you're spoiled for choice because you have so many schoolboy prodigies coming out of, rug, out, of, out of schools into rugby that you can do this kind of stuff when it comes down to then making a decision on who's going to play and who's not going to play. So if you, let's say you've got in South Africa, you'll probably have 10 to 12 hookers that could easily do the job and then find, like, trying to get down to who's going to be better in what aspect, uh, on top of, obviously, the culture, too. But in, in the Northern Hemisphere, like your smaller rugby countries like Germany, uh, you kind of you take what you get. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's also true. There's a balancing act there because yeah. you don't, you're not spoiled for choice like your, no. your Australia's, England, yeah. South Africa, New Zealand. You've alluded to it a few times now, talking about the German rugby setup, and no disrespect to all your other representations, but that to me is the most fascinating because it's unusual to hear of someone who's experienced rugby in an, what what many people would consider a non-rugby playing nation. Could you sort of talk to me a little bit about what it was like playing in the German setup versus the South African setup? I mean, are there were there stark differences, and maybe how it changed over your career? Because I'm sure, I'm sure there must have been growth and change. Oh, no, it was a, it was a massive a massive change. So I first played for Germany against the Netherlands in 2004. And you, you'd basically come together on a Thursday, train Thursday night, Friday you would travel, and Saturday you would play. Because obviously these unions don't have the luxury of being heavily funded and having the luxury of being able to pay players. Because I mean, it was all... Some of these guys are still working. They have to get leave. Uh, in Germany, you get a special leave if you're representing your country. But then when I rejoined the squad in 2015, uh, we had a, a coach by the name of Corbett Portita, who's from the Blue Bulls. He's now with Stade Francais. He, he turned it into being professional um, because it doesn't cost much to be professional. And what I mean by that is you can still train professionally, you can still behave professionally, and you can still look after your body professionally without it costing you anything. And so yeah, I, I think we played against Georgia 
And because I haven't been with the team for so long, I thought afterwards we, we, would, we would get pissed anyway and just have a good time. And none of the guys were having any beers. And then I quickly learned okay, that he had brought in the system about this. And, and, and basically, it's not, it wasn't really like a dictatorship, but it was like more respecting because the team comes first, you know, what I spoke about earlier on. It, it, it would always come down to a point where he would say, okay, guys, we've earned it. We can have a few drinks now and have, have a bit of a party because that was also a good balance to have in your squad. You know, you want to let go, let your head on a little bit and, and get to know the guys and, and, you know, the whole team bonding thing. And then when we, when we decided to go professional, we saw massive, massive strides. I mean, we were, we were battling to beat Portugal and Spain and those kind of teams. And when we went professional, within a year, we were beating these teams and we actually won the European Challenge Cup as a German side. Okay, so good times. Yeah. <laughs> so, if you don't mind me asking, that European Challenge Cup is that kind of like the second tier, the one down from the Six Nations? Uh, yeah. So that, that for the international setup, it was it was basically uh, the, the European Rugby Championship, the ERC, which is basically the only way I could always explain to my friends would be the Six Nations B, because there was no formal step up into Six Nations from because Six Nations is their own tournament. And, you know, Georgia have been knocking on the door for quite some time and they've had some, some big victories recently, you know, beating Italy and beating Wales. So they, they, in my opinion, rightfully deserve to go into Six Nations or have at least a playoff from the tournament that I was playing in, into the Six Nations. They've literally won the ERC, I don't know how many years in a row, because Russia used to be in that tournament. I think Portugal are now pushing the boundaries, having seen that they've qualified for the World Cup. Uh, let's see what they can do next year um, in this tournament, or sorry, this year. Yeah, but effectively that's it. But then the EPCR, which was the the European something Challenge Cup, which is which is what we won. We would play teams from Italy, um, Georgia, Spain, Portugal. That was it. So and the Netherlands, and then from there you would qualify into the Challenge Cup, where which we did. When we we we, we went into the group where we would have played against like Harlequins, uh, the Dragons from Wales, okay. and I think from that tournament you you go into your Heineken Cup. Okay. Wow. Okay, so that that's like a club a club rugby competition. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay, makes sense. Do you think you was talking about there's no real direct route for the teams that sit outside of the Six Nations? Surely it would be better for European rugby for there to be a road for the sides to to get onto a bigger platform um, to incentivize that because then. You know, those well, those teams are putting in obviously a lot of investment, a lot of time to, to professionalize, but then they aren't really being shown sort of a target that they can aim for. Yeah. What what we have seen though in the I'd say the last maybe ten years is that if your if your nation is doing well, let's say like the Netherlands for now, for instance, or um, Spain, Portugal, those teams that when you start performing and you and you get one or two upsets at world rugby then step in with together with European rugby. And you, you, you start having November Test Series. And, and very much often in my younger days as a German national player, we never had a November Test Series. We would play this uh, ERC, the European Rugby Championship, where it would be five tests a year, basically. Um, and then we started seeing, okay, we can play some summer tests or go on tour. We went on tour to Kenya. We went on tour to Brazil. Uh, and then November, we would obviously host countries coming across from the Southern Hemisphere. So that that's picked up a lot. So you see, like, Spain playing against Tonga, Samoa, Germany playing against Samoa, Uruguay, we played against USA. You start getting a little bit more um, exposure to, to, to other smaller unions from other continents. And uh, that often, well, you know, like we, one of my highlights was playing against Uruguay, you know, a World Cup team that obviously had competed the World Cup and we beat them. And, and that, that, that was a great play in my cap. And then we played against the USA and it was quite a tight game up until the last 20 minutes. And I think then they walked all over us. But it was still a great exposure for, for us to... I mean, even playing Samoa, the guys went across to Samoa to play there. Uh, we got drilled. We came back to Germany and it was quite a tight game and it went down to the last kind of three, four minutes, you know. And we, we beat Romania, for instance. And they, these are all teams that have competed the World Cup. So you're knocking on the door. Um, and it's just about getting exposure and playing and, and obviously funding and backing. And, and World Rugby and European Rugby are obviously big fans of that. And, I think uh, um, the Netherlands hosted Canada and Namibia now recently, and they had like some sort of an international tournament there too. So it's getting there, I think. Okay, that's nice to hear, because obviously, unfortunately, you know, sport is a form of entertainment, obviously a form of business. So oftentimes, as someone 
who's just watching as a as a sports fan, we don't get to see those kind of background movements. And it's really nice to know that there is recognition coming from the, the international rugby and from European rugby. That's great because that means that the sport is growing. Yeah. I always struggle to understand why rugby wasn't bigger globally. I mean, yeah. there's... It, I mean, obviously, especially when you look at, at something like soccer, I guess a lot of people argue that soccer you can play anywhere because of yeah. the shape of the ball and and the style of the game. Whereas rugby, you can't really play on a on a concrete. No. <laughs> the one thing about rugby is it's for all shapes and sizes. You know, yeah. so I think I think for your smaller unions and and, and obviously, I mean, I've been, I've been a part of it. It's about sustainability. So you know, you, we, were, we were very fortunate to have a big sponsor, and unfortunately, we lost that sponsor because he. He bought Start Fonte, and when we qualified for the Challenge Cup, the, the the organization said you cannot have two teams in the same tournament. So it was very easy for him to say, "Okay, uh, sorry, German rugby, but I'm out," because you've also just spent a lot of money on buying Start Fonte, probably one of the most popular rugby clubs in the world. It's tough. Life sometimes throws you these hard curveballs, and uh, but everything happens for a reason. So yeah, yeah. Didn't you guys have quite a good run going into one of the World Cups? Didn't you almost qualify the one year? Yeah, so we, we, we got to our best World Cup ranking placing was 21. So if you think the first 20 teams go to the World Cup. And we, through, through possibly a string of luck, um, because I think Belgium, Spain, and another team got, got caught out using false players. We were then uh, springboarded into the, the playoffs for the rapid World Cup rapid charge where we played against Hong Kong, uh, Kenya, and Canada. And um, prior to that, we also just lost our sponsorship. So I think even if we had our sponsorship, we would have probably qualified straight away. I think Russia went straight into the World Cup because they finished top of the log. Um, and I think we, if, had we had been together, we would have probably had the same luck. But anyway, we went to the World Cup repertoires in Marseille and uh, we, we narrowly lost to, to Canada and, and they went on to qualify. So you know, another one of those better pools to swallow. Yeah. But we got close. We got close. That's both sad to hear, obviously, but also just incredible that I would have never, maybe how long ago, 10 years ago, I would have never imagined saying, oh, there's Germany playing at the Rugby World Cup. I, I wouldn't have even known that, that Germany was a rugby playing nation. Um, so it's amazing to see how far it's come and quite quite quickly. Another thing, you mentioned the false players there. Was that to do with their their nationality status? as in where they were from. Yeah, so I think so it was Belgium back then but and Spain. But Spain had been caught out twice recently. <laughs> I think uh they qualified for the World Cup for the for this year's World Cup and then got caught out again using a false player. But I don't think it was down to them as a union. I think the actual individual was and I could be wrong, so I don't want to state facts, but he faked some documents to to then uh, somehow he got caught out and then Spain obviously got disqualified. Okay. Opening the door for other teams, I think and now Portugal have obviously qualified. Okay. In Germany's situation, you mentioned previously that the pool of players is obviously not that big because it's not a big sport in Germany. Does does the German Union tend to look offshore with people who have German connections like yourself that have a, a background or connection to Germany? Yeah, they when when we had our big sponsor, that was definitely the case. We we you know you kind of. You shake the bush a little bit here, and then, and then these guys all fall off the tree, and then you find out they, they, that their mother was born in Germany or something like that, and that automatically lets them qualify. Um, we only had two players that qualified through residency, so being here for three years, when, when it was still three years, I think now it's five years. It's changed, yeah. But then, you know, like our director of sport, I'll never forget, he's now director of sport at Lower Shoal. He was like, I've, he's got the riffraff of, of all the, the top playing nations coming to Germany to play for him. So. And then I would say to him, your riffraff is getting you places. We, we're winning things. So <laughs> just be happy. I had this conversation with Martin last time as well because he, he he's playing in Hong Kong. Just also through bad luck, he got disqualified for playing for Hong Kong yeah. out of residency because he, did a, he took a year off to do a, the row across the Atlantic, the Talisker. Mm. And then um, I think because of COVID, they took longer to get back mm -hmm. and yeah. because he was out of the country for too long, it like reset his status. So he had to start all over again and, and now I think he's 34 and he, he's just run out of time. And I, I just wonder if World Rugby could have done 
that change with a little bit more nuance. You know, it makes sense for teams like England, Scotland, Ireland that are pulling in guys from all, all over the place that they're already sort of rugby play na- playing nation. So I can understand why they did it. But surely for the Hong Kongs, the Germanys, mm. the places that are still growing as rugby nations, surely they should give them a little bit more leeway with players. I mean, it just didn't, yeah. doesn't, doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Unfortunately, it just it creates yeah it creates a lot of gray area, and then a lot of other people always complain, and they'll never be happy. So, um, I think in order to avoid setting precedent, it's, it's got to be the same across across all all boards. Yeah. Unfortunately, I get I get the fairness factor, and yeah, also you don't want to create loopholes. You know who re- who who really who are the big losers, and I don't think it ends up being the ty- the size that they think that they were trying to sort of stop from doing it. I think yeah. it ends up being the teams that needed it most. Um, they get disproportionately affected, but uh, what can you do? I guess that's just how the cookie crumbles sometimes. Yeah, I think that one of my funniest quotes from Eddie Jones, or Eddie Jones was, I think he was on a, on a podcast with, with an All Black or the New Zealand show, and he was just saying, yeah, but you've got three of the best schools in world rugby, Fiji, Samoa, and Tonga. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when you look at, uh, at teams that are competing in the World Cup, I think, I could be wrong, but I think teams like Argentina, um, Samoa, or Tom, like those are the more naturalized teams because they've literally only got Argentinians in their side. There's no, you know, like in England, there's a lot of guys that are qualified to residency or, or other smaller unions. Yeah. It's the same if you look at, at football, though, in Europe. I mean, just recently now, obviously, the World Cup finished, and I looked at that French side. How many guys, mm-hmm. how many of those guys were like French from two, three, four, Five yeah, generations ago, not many. A lot of them have been have been naturalized. So it, it happens in all sports, yeah. and where there's where there's money, people will do do anything to win. So it happens everywhere. Jeez, I see we're already up at an hour. If you don't mind going a little bit longer, um, I want yeah, no I wanted to just talk about. We've spoken a lot about sports and and your experiences. I, I, now you are you fully retired now. You you don't still pop on the park and play. Even at an amateur level? No, I would, I would love to, but I always said to myself that I would never play um, social rugby. Uh, you know, I've fortunate enough to, to see play a few Cape Town 10s tournaments and see there was some of these really bad injuries from people just being on the piss and breaking legs. And so I thought to myself, I think because mentally I'm still there to, to play the way I want to play, but my body's not there. So um, no, I'm fully involved in coaching though, and and that's that's my way of still staying in the game and and. I actually chatted to a mate yes, over the weekend, you know, and how we missed the competing aspect of it or just the contact aspect of it. But at some point, you also got to realize your body's not used to that anymore and it might take some time to get into that state. I went back and refed a bit when I was at Varsity, but I refed sort of those Corsairs games. Yeah. And I saw some of the most horrific injuries in those games because Oaks weren't doing the proper conditioning you know you kind of practice twice a week but it's not really a proper full practice and then you come and you play on a wednesday night jeez and i saw some bad injuries there it was because i was i was kind of i was coming back to ref but i was also thinking you know what maybe i'll start getting involved again and then <laughs> i saw one of the worst knee injuries i've ever seen like the guys his knee his he, his foot got stuck in the ground his knee kind of twisted and rotated in the socket and then he collapsed over it so i think he i think he tore all the ligaments. I think it was ACL, medial, everything, patella, all that stuff. And I was refing the game and I saw that injury. I was like, okay, cool. If I'm going to make a comeback to rugby, I'm going to have to definitely not do it this way. I'm going to have to do it properly. So it's interesting that you mentioned that. I just want to find out a few from the coaching side. You involved, you said with Tel Aviv, that's very interesting. Are the Israelis, are they growing rugby? Is it sort of like where Germany was 20 years ago or are they further behind or? Can't, can't you really say? I, I can't really say, but I, I do know that this, this um, obviously getting into the Super Cup tournament is, is, if unions have funding for it, then by all means do something to obviously springboard your, your, your national setup or your, like, create pathways. And I think the fact that uh, the Israeli rugby can obviously, how would I say, accommodate a team like the Tel Aviv Heat to play in this competition, it definitely helps the guys that are Israeli because it gives them something to look up to, a draft competition. That, you know, it's, it's like you're, when you're at school, you know, when you're grade eight and you're looking up at your first team guys, you're going, oh my God, these guys are amazing. They, you want to play at that level in front of, I don't know, two, 3,000 people on a Saturday morning. You know? It's definitely having an effect, a positive effect on, on the growth of the game uh, in Israel. And obviously, 
then you're getting your, I think we used this year, I think we used between eight and ten Israeli boys in the competition. And obviously every year you want to you want to grow on that. And, and so you start scouting youngsters, you bring them into the setup to, to train at that level and get them up to speed as quick as possible. Okay, that's epic. Another nation I would never have pegged as, as playing rugby. So it's great that it's yeah. getting getting around and, and growing as a sport. It's really awesome as someone who, who like really loves the game. So maybe we can round it out two big themes that I like to talk about. The one being transitioning. So moving away from playing and and into life after sports. And then the second one being, and it would be great coming from someone like you who's had a very long career in sports. What have you learned as a sportsman, as a rugby player, that you've taken away from the field and applied it maybe in business or in coaching or perhaps even off the field? So yeah, if you don't mind... Talking about the transitioning phase, was it easy? Was it tough? And then, yeah. what have you learned so that maybe people can walk away with a better understanding of of the impact that sports can have? I didn't have a, a choice on my my career ending. I had a choice on on finishing my international career. I played my last game against Portugal, and then the following year, COVID hit. So I was still playing club rugby, uh, and then COVID had a say on that. Together with the injury, I had a serious neck injury, which I could pin some nerves in my shoulder and my neck. Uh, so that, that ended for me. But then I, I would say maybe a blessing to go straight into lockdown, <laughs> uh, to kind of reflect and, and go through your life and see what you've done, what you haven't done, and look at other things. So that kind of gave me time to process it, I think, because I had time. Uh, I literally stayed at home with my son, who was then two, two and a half years old. So it, it was quality time that you probably wouldn't generally have with, with a child, you know, if you're working a man or even a sports person. So um, that kind of helped with my transition. Obviously, still missed the game terribly, but that's why I coach, because then I'm, I'm still somehow involved, passing on my knowledge onto younger guys um, and then obviously analyzing to try to bring in new things and, and, and stay up to date with, with the progression of rugby. And I guess if anything I've learned from rugby, it's, into business because I'm, 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 I'm managing a team but it's with work not into the sport but it definitely does help because I mean, if you look at a rugby team you've got you know, sometimes 20 to 35 individuals from different walks of life from different backgrounds um, and understanding what their need is and what they want to do and what their why is you learn to manage people easily so I mean I've got a team of six now and it's extremely easy to manage them and I try to make it fun for them so I've brought in a culture where it's fun to come to work uh, at the same time, also trying to set up goals and, and things like that for them to achieve so that they're getting something out of work and, and our, the feedback I'm getting is working. <laughs> I feel like my team are not, not at, at home on a Sunday thinking, oh, I've got to go to work tomorrow because they actually look forward to coming to work. So that's the one thing I've taken from rugby is that how you, there's so much in rugby you can take into business, uh, especially around teams and management. Okay, that's great. Would you say, you know, in specifically in that kind of environment, you what you spoke about earlier in terms of buy-in and getting buy-in, like all of those things you can you can really draw from and implement in, in your working teams, right? Yeah, hundred percent. I think I've also read a lot of articles. A lot of a lot of companies like to hire people that have come from team setups, sports team setups, because they there's an article I actually shared it with with my wife the other day. I mean, these guys all have to be accountable. They've got to be they've got to be, they've got to have a certain amount of integrity. They've got to be honest. Because uh, you can't cheat at, at a sports, you know, professional sports environment. You know, you, you get caught out very quickly. Um, so if you're going to bring someone into your working environment from a sports background, um, I can only see positive things. Yeah, very good point. And I think uh, Nick Costa spoke to Nick a few weeks back and or a few months back, and he said that for him specifically, you know, like he's a natural leader, and I think you are as well because you captained. And he just said, you know, drawing on the other leaders that you learned from in your career, you know, you've got that entire skill set of leadership that he that he brings into the office with him. And um, mm-hmm. another thing he hit on was, you know, how sports is so performance based. It's the it's a performance review every single week. Um, and versus yeah. you know the business environment where he said, you know, you likely if you're lucky, you only do a performance review once a year. If you're not so lucky, maybe you do it four times a year. Whereas in the sports team, you're getting reviewed every single week. Um, and he said like bringing that sort of emphasis on performance into the workplace is another thing that is great that you can bring over from sports. So yeah, I think yeah, it's just interesting. Not many pe- people think about it going into their sports careers that you can actually trans- transfer your skills over. But I think 
definitely is possible. Just the last question to wrap up. You said you didn't have a choice with the ending of your career because of due to circumstances. In a perfect world, had you known that that was going to be it, um, is there anything actionable that you would suggest or that you would have done that you could like prepare yourself for that change? Is there anything that comes to mind? Just because, I mean, so many people that I've spoken to in, that are involved in sports say, you know, that everyone that they, or most people they encounter in sports aren't quite ready for that step because they haven't given it much thought. And then your career goes so quickly and then you wake up one day and you're like, oh shit, it's over. And now I don't know what the next move is. So is there anything like actionable that you can think of that, that you could have prepared yourself to, to finish, tie things up? No, I mean, for myself, no, because I, I knew it was coming to an end. I mean, I stopped playing when I was almost 39 years old. You know, so I was still playing at a, at a decent level. But I had already started coaching. Um, so I was a player coach in my last two years. So that, that's also, I mean, we would need another episode for that. But that's, that's, that's quite a, a, a tricky transition period because you, you're coaching guys and then you're playing with them and you're making a mistake that you're trying to coach and, and so on and so forth. But I'd already known that I wanted to get into coaching. Uh, pandemic hit. Uh, rugby was no longer a thing, so I had to then look into work. So I've got work now, but I'm still involved in coaching and that's still my dream is to is to one day get full-time into that. And, and I guess if, if, if anything advice is, like, is knowing what you want to do after rugby. You know, there's some, there's some guys that I've met along the way that, that know exactly what they want to do and that rugby is not everything for them. Rugby was everything for me and I wouldn't want it any other way. So knowing what you want to do when you start ending your career and start kind of getting yourself into that rhythm so that you can identify, okay, I've got maybe three, four years left. And when that day comes, because, you know, injury could come and then it, it kind of speeds, speeds the decision up. In my case, it was COVID. Uh, at least you are then prepared to, to go into that transition. That's a very good answer because you're not the first person that said that to me about having an idea or a vision for your life post-sports, I guess that's where it starts. You know, there's thousands or hundreds of quotes about, you know, you can't get a plane somewhere if the captain doesn't know where he's flying to kind of thing. Um, okay, so it's having a goal in mind and having a vision that once your career is done, you know, you kind of yeah, have a, yeah. a, a plan of action to hit. Makes sense. I was just thinking that I was watching young, I think the under-20 Rugby World Cup, I was watching a little bit of highlights and stuff, and I was just thinking to myself, how many of those guys will sort of fall short of their career aspirations. Probably a lot of them because, you know, guys come out of nowhere into the system and then you're no longer the first choice and or you get a, a career-ending injury. And I wonder if there's a – I was just wondering if there's a space in professional sports, especially mm. in sports like rugby where there's a lot of injuries, contact injuries and things like that, to have – it'll probably have to be an NGO – to have, like, engagement with players to start that process, even if it's just a mental process of thinking about – what's next because i think mm. uh there's a huge gap there between uh for a lot of people yeah there there are unions that do that already um i actually applied for a role in the uk about that it's called the rpa rugby players association so basically i think it's i don't know who who drives it or who who who's in charge of it but basically you're looking after academy guys professional guys and professional guys ending their careers and start getting them thinking about what to do post rugby um and then you kind of you know, you're doing, what is it, some sort of a test that you do to see, okay, you, you would be good at this. You should consider doing this, you know, so. Okay, like an aptitude test. Aptitude, aptitude test, that's it. Um, and, then, and then you're kind of helping these guys making the decision and you're always in the ear because, you know, when your mom and dad tell you, you're like, yeah, dad, yes, mom, whatever. But if someone who's come from a professional setup themselves is then telling you or guiding you to, to look into that, I'm telling you right now, you won't, when you, when you post post your career, you won't have any regrets because you've got something to fall back onto. Uh, and it might actually give you another sort of passion alongside your rugby and you, and you know exactly, it could make you a better individual, you know, and a better performer knowing that you've got something to fall onto post, post your sports career. Yeah, maybe lift a little bit of the pressure off that that's not exactly. your eggs are not all in one basket. Yeah, exactly. I think from a psychological point of view, that makes a lot of sense. I know that, you know, another thing Carl Brown mentioned to me is that they, they've got that they're starting that setup in South Africa now, but it's not with a union, I don't think. But it's a yeah, company called. I think it's my players. Is it not my players? Maybe there's another one as well. But he's yeah. doing it through a company called Reboot. It's called Reboot for okay. Life, and 
basically they, they're trying to onboard the guys early on. And then yeah. it's, I think to start off with, it's exactly what you said. It's just like a voice in the ear, kind of like, here's some suggestions. Here's some things you can yeah. be doing rather than my career is now over. Now I need to jump mm. ship. And now you yeah. kind of, you scrambling and trying to make things work. Yeah. All right, Mike, thanks so much for giving up your time. Is yeah, there, no problem. Thanks for having me. Is there anything else you'd like to add before you go? No, no, all good. Uh, I could talk sports all day, so I've <laughs> got no, nothing more to add. But yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. No problem. As we come to the end of this episode of Speaking to Stacey, I want to say a big thanks for listening all the way through. I hope that you have found some value in Mike's insights. Before you go, I have one last favor to ask. Please remember to subscribe to Speaking to Stacey. That way you'll never miss new episodes. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show. Remember, the more the show grows, the easier it is for me to continue to bring you beneficial content. In next week's show, I sit down with Jason Jeffcoat. We talk about what it takes to be a personal trainer and some of the challenges he faced in his 20s. I hope you enjoyed the show today. I look forward to sharing this experience with you again next week. Until then, keep well.